When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this debate. Thank you, Hannah. Thank you, Intelligence Squared. A sign that I move from television to radio is I'm allowed to wear a jumper now. It feels like a transformation. The first speaker you're going to hear from tonight, and each speaker's got about 10 minutes. They're welcome to take less time if they want to. Um, we're going to hear, first of all, from Chukaramuna. Now, Chukaramuna, as you know, is the Labour MP, MP for Streatham. He's the former Shadow Business Secretary and leads now a cross-party coalition with around half a million supporters who are calling for what they call, for what he calls, a people's vote on the final deal. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chukramuna. Uh, well, good evening, everyone, and thank you very much to Intelligence Squared for asking me to speak this evening. I'll jump straight in. Um, thanks for the introduction. I've been called a Ramona, a Bramona. Um, the last time I did one of these events with Nigel Farage, I was called a Romanian. Um, and I'm proud. I'm proud to be all of those things because this issue is more than political. It is about my family. Um, I'm a quarter Irish. You may not be able to see that from my complexion. I've got a Danish brother-in-law, a Danish niece and nephew. I have a French aunt. We have Spanish nationals in my family. Some of my family are here with me tonight. And we are very typical of so many families in my constituency, which are similarly British and European and proud to be so. Um, my constituency scored the highest Remain vote in the country in 2016. And we are very proud of that. You can clap if you want. Um, and so we are part of that 16 million group of people who've been smeared as some liberal metropolitan elite. Um, you know, those who voted against Brexit, those citizens of nowhere. Um, well, let me tell you something about Streatham. We are proud to be metropolitan and diverse, with 40% of our community being drawn from an ethnic minority background. We don't believe that immigrants, whether EU citizens or not, are the cause of all the problems in Lambeth. And we are proud to be liberal too. Pro-equality, pro-human rights, uh, pro-the liberal view of the world. But don't you dare call my constituents some elite. I am fed up hearing people smear those who voted to remain in the European Union as some elite. 
Most of our residents in Lambeth can't afford to own their own home and rent. One in four of my constituents lives in absolute poverty. We're one of the most deprived local authority areas in England. So, no, we are not a community that has seen all of the benefits of globalisation and hasn't seen the downside. I've made a point as chair of the all-party parliamentary group on social integration, of spending a lot of time in the communities that voted in the opposite way, that voted in the greatest number to leave, like, for example, in Boston and Skegness, to understand what drove the vote back in 2016 in those areas. And you know what? I found it was the same problems and the same challenges that we face in Lambeth. A lack of decent and affordable homes. Not enough well-paid jobs that enable you to provide for your family. Pressures on public services that don't have enough resources. That's what I found. And the truth is that in 2016... And I think whether you're, you know, leave or remain in this room, you will acknowledge we were having a hypothetical debate then about what would happen if we voted to leave. But now we are actually dealing with the reality of the situation. We're dealing with facts in a way that we weren't dealing with them then. We are in 2018 now, and we've got to face the reality of the actual situation that we're in. And I think there are a number of things that we can all agree on, however you voted, wherever you are in our country. This process is taking far longer, these negotiations, than any of us really thought they would take. And they are much, much more complex than I think many people foresaw. I mean, who would have thought that Brexit would have the impact that it is clearly posing to the Good Friday Agreement settlement in Northern Ireland, which brought peace after so many decades of bloodshed? Who would have thought Brexit would impact on that situation in the way that it clearly is. Who would have thought that Brexit would impact on the transportation of medical isotopes used in cancer treatment and research? And the list goes on of all these things that you never would have thought Brexit would impact on. And clearly, I think we all now know, we're not going to get the economic benefits you have as a member of the club, outside of the club. Uh, I mean, why would you join the club in the first place if you could get all the benefits without complying with the obligations or paying the membership fee. So all that nonsense that, you know, you were told that, you know, the Italians want to sell us Prosecco, the French Brie, the German cars, and therefore we would get all these wonderful special benefits. Of course, we all now know that is not the case. And what we do know is that we are going to be paying a whopping great divorce bill of up to £40 billion. No one mentioned that uh, before. And we're going to be making payments through to 2064 so that we can exit and continue to have some participation in some parts of the European Union, if we're lucky, but of course no say on any of those rules. And, well, do I need to mention the big red bus? You know, and the 300, where's that 350, is, is it gone over there? That 350 million pounds extra per week for the NHS. We all know that's not going to happen. We do know that 10,000 medical professionals have left our NHS since that leave vote and we've got nursing shortages. We know that. Um, we also know that everyday items that we all rely on, bread, cereal, coffee, tea, those types of things are all a lot more expensive because of the depreciation of the pound sterling. So, of course, I would love to stop Brexit, but in a way, the, the title up here is kind of beside the point because 
My argument is that whatever happens, given the gravity and the magnitude of this issue, and let's be frank about this, there's not going to be a consensus in the House of Commons on what we do on this deal when Theresa May returns from Brussels with it, we expect at the end of this year. There's not going to be consensus. But given the gravity of this, I think it is wrong, it's just plain wrong, that 650 people should vote on this Brexit deal which will impact on every single family in this room and many generations to come, and yet 65 million people should be denied their say on the deal. And I'll tell you what, above all, I just cannot get over the fact that we will be denying so many young people. Over half a million young people have not had a say on this at all. Do they think we are denying them the benefits that we've taken for granted? Uh, for so long during our membership of the European Union. Whatever you think of that, my view is they deserve a say, and actually I think they should have a say, from the age of 16. I just want to wrap up by saying this. Look, democracy is not static. I know some people would like to think that you press a button and everything stops at a point in time, but it isn't static. It is dynamic, and that's why we have regular general elections and we have national polls. And to those who worry about the democratic element of this, I don't think you can thwart the will of the people if they are the ones that get to determine the future trajectory of this country. In the end, we're talking about their futures. I know which way I would be voting if we have another poll. But for goodness sake, let us make sure that it's not an elite in Westminster that determine our futures. Let's give the people a vote on the Brexit deal. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Chukaramuna. Now for the first speaker against the motion Brexit must be stopped, Isabella Oakeshott, currently writing a book called White Flag on the State of the British Armed Forces, former political editor of the Sunday Times, author of Call Me Dave. You remember about the, the pig? Yeah. Okay. Um, and also The Bad Boys of Brexit. Isabella Oakeshott, your 10 minutes starts now. Um, I want to start with a, a bit of a confession tonight. Um, I am a Brexiteer and I am absolutely sick of Brexit. I think that the whole nation, including those of us who passionately feel that Brexit must go ahead in the form that people thought they were voting for, I think people are fed up of it. They just want to get on with it so that we can get on in doing and tackling some of the other stuff that Chucker listed. The important issues like defence, health and education, care for the elderly, none of which are, frankly, whatever the government tells you right now, none of them are getting the bandwidth that they deserve. Casting my mind back to the referendum, which just feels like a, a lifetime away, that was one of the most exciting nights, if not the most exciting nights, of my professional life. As a Eurosceptic journalist, i really come to know a lot of the key players on the campaigns over the years. And on the night of the referendum, I was with uh, many of the key figures on those teams, including with Nigel Farage and the Leave.eu team. And I'll never forget what a, a kind of extraordinary roller coaster that was. 
But particularly for those politicians that have devoted so much of their lives to the fight to getting out of the EU. And I remember for the rest of my life standing on College Green very early on the morning after the referendum and the sun was just coming up. And there was such a sense of jubilation amongst all of those who voted for Brexit and disbelief that this had actually happened. And I remember the lorries were trundling past the House of Commons and honking on their horns and what I'd like to think was jubilation too. But I want to use my last few minutes to try to tackle some Brexit myths. What's this debate here tonight all about? It's about one thing, democracy. That's pretty much it. People have voted. It was a yes or no question. First past the post. Yes, it was close. But the result was clear. 17.4 million people voted for out. That's the biggest mandate in history. In fact, it's the biggest vote in British history on anything. And there was a huge turnout. So politicians can like it or not, but it's their democratic duty now to carry it out. And can you imagine how disastrous it would be for democracy if a bunch of politicians decided that actually they don't like the result and so they're going to ask us all again. In fact, ideally framing the question so there can only really be one answer, the one that they want. What if we went through all this again, and as seems very likely, the result was just as narrow as it was last time? Then what would have been achieved? So for me, this is the most important point tonight. It is about democracy. This was not supposed to be the best of three. Now, while we're on the point about democracy, I want to just make sure you don't fall for a classic piece of Remainer trickery, that true democracy would be about having a second referendum. You can see the EU's contempt for democracy purely in its approach to referenda, actually. I mean, we've been here before. They've got two tactics. Basically, you threaten the country with economic, economic retaliation and then force it to hold a second referendum. That's what happened to Ireland when it voted against the Lisbon Treaty back in 2007, or, and this is a real danger, they accept the vote and then just do what the voters rejected anyway, but in another guise. And that's what happened to the French and the Danes when they voted against the European Constitution in 2005. Anyway, um, it, I mean, it's important to note, by the way, that Jean-Claude Juncker has been pretty open about his contempt for democracy. Here's a selection of his best quotes. If it's a yes, we'll say, on we go. If it's a no, we'll say, we continue. Here's another one. Britain is different. Of course there will be transfers of sovereignty, but would I be intelligent to draw attention to this fact? Here's another one. Monetary policy is a serious issue. We should discuss this in secret. I'm ready to be insulted as being insufficiently democratic, but I want to be serious. I am for secret dark debates. And finally, and here's the thumper, there can be no democratic choice against the European treaties. He actually said that. So on to other myths. Classic ones. People who voted for Brexit have changed their minds. Now they've realised how awful it's going to be. Look, this is just rubbish. There is no evidence that people have changed their mind. There have been a few polls which appear to show a sliver of difference now in favour of Remain. How do we know that's not to be taken with any great significance? Well, the analysis is that that little difference there is all down to people who actually didn't vote last time. They didn't even bother voting last time. 
and might vote this time, and if they did, they might vote Remain. It is not to be taken seriously. Then there's the classic one about, you know, this vote doesn't count because Brexiteers lied, blah, 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 350 million, blah, blah, blah. Of course, uh, we could expect that to come up tonight, um, this suggestion that people didn't really know what they were voting for. I think this is absolutely insulting. I think people knew exactly what they were voting for. Now, it may have been an emotional vote rather than one based on economic minutiae, but that's no less valid for that. And uh, I'm not even going to bother with the Remain lies because I think we're all pretty much equal on that. The other myth is that Brexit is some kind of aberration, the result of a one-off vote, a, a kind of historic accident. Uh, let's go through all the votes that led to Brexit, and I'll do this really quickly. First of all, a governing party, the Conservatives, won a majority in an election with a manifesto that promised a referendum. Secondly, Parliament voted through the legislation guaranteeing the referendum. Thirdly, the referendum actually took place. Fourthly, Parliament voted to pass Article 50. Fifthly, the Conservatives were returned to government in 2017 on a promise to implement Brexit. And in fact, the party that promised to reverse it, the Lib Dems, did pretty crap. Then we have Theresa May becoming Tory leader on a promise to implement Brexit in full. And Jeremy Corbyn, who beat Owen Smith, and that's Owen Smith who wanted to reverse Brexit. So it's perfectly clear the voters have had plenty of chance to elect anti-Brexit candidates, and they've rejected them. And finally, if you're still feeling nostalgic about the EU, just look at Jean-Claude Juncker's sickening letter to Putin congratulating him on his re-election. This man wants to be mates with a murderer, a murderer who, as we've seen, holds democracy in utter contempt. That is not something we should do ourselves by stopping Brexit. If ever there was a reason to strike out into the world on our own, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Isabel Oakeshott. Uh, next to speak for the motion, Brexit must be stopped, Gina Miller. You will know Gina for leading, leading the legal battle for a parliamentary vote. Uh, she is... Uh, Just before Gina starts, she's founder of SCM Direct, an investment company, and confessed just before, which her husband raised an eyebrow to, that she is known in the city as the Black Widow Spider. So, Gina Miller, please speak. Um, thank you, Nick. Good evening, everyone, and thank you to the organisers for inviting me tonight. Now, I want to get down to a serious talk. Just a year ago... Just over a year ago, the Supreme Court, in the decision of my case, forced the government to behave lawfully and have a vote that triggered us leaving the European Union. Fourteen months on, I think we are all entitled to question exactly what our government has achieved. On Monday, to much fanfare, the draft transitional agreement was published. 
It contained, we saw quite a lot of green, a large amount of agreed detail. Importantly, however, this draft agreement, or agreement that we'll see signing tomorrow, almost by default shines a light on the significant amount that is still to be agreed. There is still a mountain of uncertainty. There is still no sector-by-sector -sector substance. There has been no agreement on the primacy of the ECJ during the transition period. There has been no agreement on data sharing for collective and mutual security purposes. There has been nothing decided on fisheries or Northern Ireland, to which, as we know, has got the Brexiteers on media manoeuvres um, and up in arms. The government are putting a brave face on what they've achieved or they have achieved. But as we know, the Brexiteers are not happy. They are saying that they will vote down the agreement. And then a sort of perverse vindication, surely that means it's actually going in the right direction. But anyway, on a more serious note, the Brexiteers have also said that um, they want to set the bar even higher, that the things they want, in my view, are completely irreconcilable with anything that would be an orderly Brexit. They appear to be holding a very destructive and disloyal pistol to Mrs. May's head. They've set the bar, as I've said, impossibly high, and they talk about us being traitors. So we're here we find ourselves, not really where we thought we would be. And actually, I think most Brexiteers should be upset and angry because they're not being delivered the Brexit they were promised. But the Remainers, perhaps, will have a little lighter tread in their step in the thinking that maybe the negotiation is going better. I'm not sure about that, as I said, because of the time restraints and the complexities and the red lines. The outcome may well, may well be a plague on all our houses, however you voted. So if this is a gross betrayal, a denial, a fundamental flaw, what is the answer? I think the answer lies in our democratic accountability. Democratic accountability, transparency and openness, the things we cherish, apparently on both sides. There is no divide there. We both treasure sovereignty, democracy, honesty, truth. So why not have that? To my mind, let's have some honest talking because we've not really talked about the rumours emanating from the UK and French ports authorities that we hear that there could be 30-mile queues at the borders between Dover and Calais on both sides of the channel and a run on precious foods, uh, per sorry, perishable foods, medical supplies, basic household goods. Have we heard that? Well, actually, the hauliers' associations, the transport associations are all saying it, but it's not being reported. Similarly, we're hearing nothing about the fact that if airlines do not have 50.1% EU citizen ownership, they may well not be able to fly on the 1st of January 2021. That is BA, EasyJet, Ryanair. I am told by both the EU and UK side 
that there is potential for chaos because the government seems totally unwilling to acknowledge or provide credible reassurances or plans, that people are completely baffled. So I have come to the point that the Brexiteers are saying that they're not happy, they'll think, make things more difficult. It is my view that the public must have the right to vote on whether they think the outcome of the negotiations is good enough and is consistent with the vision they were promised in 2016. If you're a company, you do a regular audit to check if your strategy is actually delivering on your profit margins to what you promised your consumers, to what you promised your staff. Well, why can't we do that with our country? The approach should be the same. I am firmly of the view that the public should have the right to vote on the real and tangible results of the negotiations. And I cannot see what is so unfair about that. In fact, it is not unfair. Is it not the most democratic thing to do? It holds true to the enduring values of our liberal and representative democracy by demonstrating real accountability to voters. Even Jacob Rees-Mogg in 2011 said, if this doesn't go well, there should be a second vote. The issue, therefore, isn't why would we have a people's vote on the future of our country, but why wouldn't we? If the role is to stop Brexit in that vote, then we would accept that. But we are not there yet. A people's vote on the options, on their future, on the future of the country and what they want, is surely the most democratic thing we can do to end this. Because I think all of us on this panel will agree. There is no space, there is no bandwidth for the domestic causes of Brexit. There is no time being spent on policing, housing, NHS. We all agree on that. We are fed up with Brexit. But there must be a vote that draws a line, is respected whichever way it is. And we have to get on with our country and bringing our people back together again. Thank you. Thank you to Gina. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So the, um, the last speaker in our debate tonight, uh, speaking against the motion, Brexit must be stopped, is Gerard Lyons. He used to be Chief Economic Advisor to the Mayor of London when it was uh, Boris Johnson. Is the co-author of a book called Clean Brexit, Why Leaving the EU Still Makes Sense. And he is Chief Economic Strategist at the Discretionary Wealth Manager, Net Wealth Investments. Gerard Lyons. Thank you. Well, good evening. Thank you to the organisers for inviting me. It's a great honour to be on the panel with the other speakers. Um, elections come and go. People often vote by habit. But when it comes to referendums, you are really, really, really forced to think. And in the first half of 2016, people thought. I have, th I have three children. They were then 18, 22, 24. They told me for four months, they and their friends talked about one thing, the referendum. Tonight, I think we should embrace the result and actually respect the result. And talking about bringing our country together, who thinks a second referendum, a acrimonious four-month referendum, is going to bring this country together? In fact, I think people, instead of trying to have another referendum, should actually get behind the government and force it to be arguing in Britain's best interests. First, the economy. Britain has a really... Um, imbalanced economy. It has fundamental problems we need to address up to, and it has some fundamental strengths. These were highlighted by the global financial crisis a decade ago, and after 40-odd years being in the EU, we haven't really addressed some of these issues. But I think with Brexit, we have a fundamental positive opportunity. The world economy is changing. Globalisation, technical change, innovation, the fourth industrial revolution are positive for an economy like Britain, which has 80% services, if we can position ourselves globally. Being in the EU, indeed if we went back into it, would be like walking the wrong way on an escalator, controlling, centralising, regulating. We need to break free of that, and the referendum has given us an opportunity. People vote for all sorts of reasons. Sovereignty, migration and the economy were shown to be the three big factors. And that's why we are where we are. 
we have to be outside the single market. Outside the single market, respect sovereignty coming back to Parliament. We set our own laws. You, the people, keep the MPs to account. Outside the single market allows us to have our own migration policy. Not the current migration policy based on geography. We discriminate against the rest of the world. We favour the EU. But a migration policy based on skills and what we need. Low migration does not mean no migration. Also, at the same time, it allows us to focus our economy. Let's look at some of the facts. The EU is a declining share of the world economy. The EU is a declining share of our exports. Indeed, back in 1980, the current EU would have been 34% of the global economy. Now it's 22%. After we've left, it's going to be less than 20%. Still important, hence we need to have a good relationship with it, but not the most important thing. We have to be outside the customs union. It's discriminating. I used to work in the city. I used to go across Africa at Standard Chartered. A number of exporters who, in Africa couldn't let their goods into the EU market. Why? Think of it like this. Around the customs union is a protective barrier, tariffs. The tariffs were set there to protect French farmers, German car makers. That's why in other areas, tariffs have come down, but basically the highest tariffs we pay are on food, clothing, footwear, and autos. We can then set our own trade deals. Several much smaller economies than the British, Chile, Singapore, South Korea, with far less diplomatic and commercial clout than we have, have more trade deals than the European Union, despite it being 28 countries. Economically, this is an opportunity outside. Second, young people, I think, should embrace Brexit. One of the big myths is that they have most to fear. Why would they? Shouldn't they be worried about the growth of extremist parties across all of Europe, apart from in Britain? Why is that happening? Because it's built on shaky foundations. Why is it that so many young people are unemployed across Europe, particularly in southern European states? Because it's built on unfit foundations. Basically, it's a discriminating setup. It favours big business. That's why Jeremy Corbyn is against it, quite rightly. What's interesting, and my son actually showed me this, 2012, the Home Office produced a comprehensive report showing where British people emigrate to. What's amazing, young people say they can't travel, they won't be able to work in the EU. Well, the reality is very few of them actually leave Britain to go and work in the EU. The data, Home Office data, shows that when British people leave Britain to retire, they go to the EU. When British people leave Britain to go for work, they go outside the EU. Five of the top eight countries where British people get jobs when they leave Britain are outside the EU. North America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, you know it. Basically, retire, go to the EU, go for work elsewhere. Basically, younger people should recognise that the longer, further ahead you look, the more Britain will be able to reposition itself globally outside the EU. Third, imagine if we went back in. Wow, autocratic leaders across the world, Xi Jinping, Putin in Turkey. Look at Britain, 17.4 million people vote and they disregard it. Gosh, what moral authority does that give us then? None. Basically, we have to recognise that we view the EU through an economic and financial lens and the rest of the EU views it through a political lens. And indeed, we seem to forget the Amsterdam Treaty, the Lisbon Treaty has happened. 
Life has changed. This is not the 1990s. This is an EU project that President Macron has outlined quite clearly in the last six months. He's highlighted the reality we need to face up to. He said either the EU fragments into different layers, a core and a periphery, or it marches on to closer political union. The reality is that if we go back in, we either have a choice of being in the periphery where we have no control, no say, or we have to sign up to a core, to a political union. It's fundamentally flawed. It's based on the euro. The Germans and the French have made clear survival of the euro is central to the process. The euro is the worst idea thought up by anyone, anytime, anywhere, and it's central to the EU. Let me... Let me, let me conclude. Not all has gone well in the last 20 months. I'm not here to defend the government at all. Indeed, the complexity of leaving, if you ask me, highlights why we must leave. It shows how much the EU has infiltrated every aspect of our life, sometimes without us even knowing or realising it. Basically, what's happened since the referendum, on the positive, Google and all the tech companies, despite Brexit, have decided that the UK, led by London, will be their tech centre outside of Silicon Valley. There's been a sea change in the city where I worked for 25 years. London is going to remain the financial centre of Europe. The lady... OK, well, we can talk about this in the Q&A. Actually, I went down to the Labour Party conference and it's going to remain the financial centre globally. I don't know what was the funny point. Gina said that we're going to have queues at the border. Sometimes people are very selective with their information. Seven times the head of the HMRC has testified to various parliamentary committees. They roll out the new thing this summer. He said they will be working fully from day one. Project Fear. Now, I didn't agree with what went on the side of the bus. I wasn't involved in the official campaign. It was a gross figure. They should have used a net figure. But the gist of it was, we send a vast amount of money and let's fund our priorities instead. That was a message most people understood. But if you want to know what was the big misinformation, sure. I went across the country and the biggest misinformation was Project Fear. We were told in a year of leaving, 500, sorry, in a year of a vote to leave, never mind leaving, so by last June, 500,000 jobs would have gone. The worst case scenario was 800,000 jobs would have gone. What's happened? We've added 550,000 jobs. Basically, there's lots of things we should have done when we were in the EU that we will now have to do now, and we can't blame Brussels. But the previous coalition government had a whole series of competency reports, Gerard. and these highlight why it's so complicated to leave that those competency reports shows that so many things we need to run ourselves are currently run by Brussels. Thank you. Gerard Ryan. Okay. For excellent speeches, an opportunity now for some debate, for some questions, for some answers. This is how you voted before, and frankly you may have guessed this from the reaction to speakers, but before the debate, before hearing the arguments afresh, in favour of the motion that Brexit should be stopped, 65%. Against the motion, 23%.
undecided 12%, and we are going to give you the chance to vote again, possibly to change your mind if you wish to, or to confirm your view. Let's begin over here, then. Short and pithy, if you would. A bit galling to hear... Uh... Gina and Chucker evoking democracy. I don't remember you campaigning for the right of the British people to have a say on this, including millions of Labour voters in the first place. If it had been 52% remain, you would not be campaigning for a referendum now. But the second point is also that you... You are waging a shameless neo-McCarthyite campaign whereby you have insinuated that to be pro-European is to be pro-EU. I'm a European, I'm half French, a quarter Italian. The Vote Leave campaign was led by a Labour German MP, Gisela Stewart. There are millions of people across Europe who want a different type of Europe than the undemocratic uh, system of government based upon an unelected commission which has the monopoly right to in- introduce new legislation. Okay. The French people don't want that. Thank you very much indeed. We'll get, I will split the points of a way. Chuck, deal with the democracy point. The point being you're only in favour of democracy if it ter- overturns uh, the result that you don't like. You weren't much interested in it before. Well, we have general elections every four to five years, and I'm not against general elections because it might change a government. And I still, I mean, I see where you're coming from, but I still can't see how you thwart the will of the people if they are the ones who, in the end, determine what happens on this deal. And I tell you, the biggest fan of Brexit is that famous Democrat, Vladimir Putin. I think that said something, uh, you know, and I don't get this McCarthyite thing. I mean... We weren't McCarthyite at all about it. But I tell you where I do agree with you. Minions do want change. There's no doubt about it. But the question is how you change. Now, I happen to think we've got a better chance of changing all the problems we've been talking about from within the European Union, working with lots of other countries... across borders to try and get globalisation to work better for middle and lower income people. I don't see how you're going to do that on your own when you're living in the context of globalisation. Gina, can you address the point that's being made, which is there is a blurring, I think this is your point, sir, a blurring between being pro-European and pro-EU, and you can be anti-the EU and perfectly positive about Europe and indeed regard yourself as a European. Yeah, it's not binary. I mean, you can be British and European as well. I mean, it works both sides of the argument. So, I mean, I think what I would say is that I agree with you that what we're seeing at the moment is unity of the 27 when it comes to Brexit. But beyond that, there is actually disunity and there are problems in the EU, and I would agree that I think we have always been a very strong voice. We have been the people writing most of the legislation and brokering peace between the other member states, and we could be there reforming from within. We just haven't that... We don't have the opportunity. We're going to give away the opportunity, because unfortunately... Brexit, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, Brexit has actually been a heart attack to the EU. They are in shock. And there is a window of opportunity, especially with the re-energized Franco-German engine, to create change. They are actually talking about it. And we should be there benefiting from it. We will not be there benefiting from it if we leave. Thank you very much indeed. I am going to... uh... I'm going to take another point. I'll bring in Gerald in a moment. Thank you very Um, much. I'll just bring you back in two seconds. Isabel said that we must deliver the... Brexit that the people who voted for Brexit voted for. How does she actually know what that was? How did you know? <laughs> Lovely. 
just, if you don't mind, Isabel, because we've not heard from Gerard yet in these questions, how would you address that point, Gerard? Well, uh, people, as I said, people vote for all sorts of reasons. But what we do know is that from the work done at the time and afterwards, that people voted, it seems, in order. Sovereignty was the most important issue. Migration, the second and economic factors, the third. And and, Well, you might include that in migration or the economy, I don't know. But also what's interesting, just as a few months ago that we heard that youthquake no longer didn't actually occur, the LSE is doing research that shows that there's this myth that has been broken about what type of people voted for Brexit. It was across the spectrum. In fact, it was what's interesting, it was across the political spectrum as well, in terms of two out of three Tory voters, I think about 30% of Labour voters or something like that, even more maybe up north indeed, which is partly explains why Labour is so enthusiastic, maybe about leaving the single market as well. So we, an answer to that question, we know it from research that's been done. Can I come back to the previous point? Because it's important. Briefly. No, it's important because Chuck had made a point and you all clapped about reforming. Where have you actually been? Where have you actually been? I used to be on the advisory board of Open Europe, which was pro-reform the EU think tank. And for ages, the biggest issue was reform the single market in services. And the single market does not work in services. And that reform has been argued for by us, the Swedes, everyone. Has it taken place? No. You seem to forget why we had the referendum. David Cameron, then Prime Minister, went and asked the EU to make simple reforms, and they say, up yours, basically. Actually, Mrs and this Merkel is what's said... Happened. No, no, hang on, hang on. No, Just no, briefly, no, briefly. No, no. On. Miss, no, Mrs Merkel said to Cameron, you should make this a remain and reform agenda, and he ignored her so you, okay. quite, so you quite like the idea the Germans tell us how to run our sovereignty? No, it that was seems a good suggestion. Okay. No. Excuse me. Microphone number three this here. Is Thank you very much. all of us together. Of course it's all of us together. Sorry, yeah, lady in the back. A point to Gina Miller. First of all, my congratulations, congratulations and utmost admiration. You are the definition of democracy in action. Thank you. <laughs> the second point is to ask, has a legal pathway to a second referendum been identified? Is a second referendum actually a possibility in law. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Gina. There are actually two ways, we believe, or a couple of ways. In the withdrawal bill, unfortunately, it was um, missed in the House of Commons, but there is actually under the 2011 Act, if there is a treaty change, which us leaving or the end deal will be a treaty change, you actually have to, by law, have a referendum. Um, that was, it is now in the House of Lords, and Lord Adonis has laid down an amendment to have that withdrawn. If he is successful, it pings back to the House of Commons, and they say that that 2011 Act cannot be repealed because it was put in to safeguard treaty changes for very good reasons, then that will naturally require a referendum on the treaty I change. I thought, forgive me, I thought this was a piece of coalition legislation, wasn't it? And my memory of that was, because it's a Liberal Democrat supporting it, that they basically said there would be a referendum in the event of more powers being transferred to Brussels. Now, this would not it take No, that. it technically is, but the thing is, if it's yeah. a vassal state, if we end up in transition and then... Uh, ...then it would be actually transferring more Just powers. Just a clarity, and your second um, point? And the second point is that if in the meaningful vote debate... In Parliament, there is a requirement that the MPs say that there needs to be a vote put back to the people, then that will be the mechanism under which it's done. Thank you very much. Yep. Lady there at the back. Number one. Yep. Uh, hello. 
On you go. Um, this is a question for Chuka. Um, in view of the recent revelations from Cambridge Analytica that elections are won on hopes and fears rather than facts and debate, what are the implications for a second referendum? Very briefly, if you would. First of all, I would like to know the extent to, ca- to which Cambridge Analytica was involved with the Leave campaigns. We need to know the answer to that question. Uh, and I believe, actually, there will be more revelations on that front in the coming days. I think, secondly, look, I, I, I believe the debate about our future of our country has to be based as much as we possibly can base it on evidence. But I also do think there is an emotional argument to be made here as well. And for me, at the heart of that has to be the opportunities that we are providing for the future generation in what we are doing here. But also, there is a sense somehow that we can blame the European Union and the so-called bureaucrats. I mean, never mind that it's elected heads of government on an EU council who determine things that happen in the European Union with an elected European Parliament as opposed to a European Commission. But the, but the bottom line is, I, 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 I worry because I think one of the things that that 2016 referendum unleashed was this sense that it's okay to other people and blame other institutions for domestically created problems. Okay. And I prefer to be hopeful and optimistic about our capacity as a country to address yep. those problems Number two. together. Yep. Um, this one's for Miss Oakshot. Um, you stated that, the, that we knew what we were getting into with the vote, but how could we know when the day after the Brexit result becomes known to the public, one of the most Googled searches, if not the most Googled searches, is what, what is, is Brexit? And how could we possibly it? know what in reality we were getting into when we were lied to? So our educated guess or our educated vote was false. And do you not believe that you stated that we as a democracy should have the right to vote, but we are a representative democracy and what we have voted for is for our politicians to make an educated guess on our behalf. Okay, good not- question. Isabel Aksham. Well, I mean, the answer is, um, actually, we couldn't possibly know the detail of how it was going to pan out, but what we could know is what we were seeking to regain, which was sovereignty and control over immigration as the two key things that people voted for. And, you know, actually, Chucker brought up this point about how the referendum was a sort of hypothetical debate because we weren't sure what was going to happen. Well, I mean, of course we weren't precisely sure what was going to happen, just like people weren't precisely sure what would happen when they voted for you to be their MP. Now, fortunately, they weren't disappointed. But you wouldn't want another election before you've even had a chance to start the job, would you? But do you regret saying it, uh, that what you referred to as the lies were blah, blah, blah? I... What, I, I, I... First of all, I don't for a minute accept that what went on the side of the bus actually was a lie, because it said... <laughs> yes, it was a lie. It, it, it did not contain a pledge to do that. It said we could. So I'm absolutely happy to stand by what was on that bus. Really? Well, I didn't put it on there, but yeah. (laughs) But but Gerald Lyons, you don't think that what was on the bus was true because it said the words £350 million a week are sent 
to Brussels. I think I'm accurate in saying there has not been a single week in history in which £350 million has been sent to Brussels. Uh, well, actually, I said that the week it was a big issue on the Radio 4 Today programme. Yeah. So I, I actually said I don't yeah. agree with the okay. 350 on the side of the bus. But actually, the biggest lie was the whole information booklet that came out from the government beforehand. Absolutely. The biggest lie, and the biggest... When I spoke across the country at different events, I wasn't part of the official campaign, but I spoke at lots of events. The single biggest uh, figure that get, got quoted was the 500,000 job losses. The number of times people said, I okay. would vote to leave, but I'm worried about losing my job. Okay. They didn't lose their job. Gina Miller, I just want to put to you, do you really believe that there will not be medical supplies after Brexit and that there will be 13-mile queues at customs? Really? Well, if you, I've spoken, the people I've spoken to that that detail comes from is the Freight Haulage Association, the UK Transport Association, the European Transport Association. Again, they might as just be talking this up as a possibility in order no, to get attention. No, they are very worried because they are going to be in as much trouble as we are. Because we're talking about things like, on the medical point of view, is that if there is a delay of even six minutes and it's HIV drugs, renal drugs, they have to now design completely new refrigeration systems. There's going to be delays. There is only in Dover enough room for 82 lorries. We have no compulsory buying orders going through. There is no substance and detail. There is nothing okay. happening at the moment. Just as I took Isabel on, I'm just going to be gentle, and you said it was never reported, except I did the Today programme live <laughs> from Calais, in which we interviewed all the people who made the points you've just made. Yeah, could we have the microphone over there, please? Thank you very much. Evening. Uh, I'd like to challenge Mr Lyons, who used to work in this city. Uh, I do work in this city, and the mood there is not good. Um, and I'd like to throw some numbers at you um, over the 44-year span of our membership of the EU. In 1973, UK GDP was $192.5 billion. If we assume generously an average annual growth rate of 2.5%, that $192 billion would be worth $600 billion GDP today. Actually, UK GDP is a shade under $3 trillion. So, so clearly something has been very beneficial over that 44-year period. How can you stand there and tell us you're a champion of free trade and yet challenge our membership of the very institution that has brought about such economic growth? OK, thank you. <laughs> Gerard Lyons. Well, well, I could repeat what I said. Uh, look, I'm still involved in the city. I'm on the board of Bank of China in the UK. I'm at, um, at Net Wealth Investments. I'm an advisor in a financial consultancy in the city. So I am still heavily involved in the city. The customs union is a protectionist union. It has a tariff barrier around it. That's why we have high tariffs on food, clothing, footwear and autos. 8% of firms sell directly into the single market. <coughs> they are the firms who sell into the single market who could still access it from outside. It would be wrong to attribute the success that we've had, and it's been very imbalanced over the last 40 years, to membership of the EU. We had a supply-side revolution okay. in the 1980s. People seem to have forgotten under Mrs Thatcher and then subsequently under Tony Blair we had phenomenal economic change and transformation and it highlights the fact that we need to actually be thinking globally 85% of trade is outside the EU sorry, 85% of future growth will be outside the yeah. EU according to the European Commission. Okay, thank you and very much. And therefore, we need to reposition ourselves. So I'm sorry to cut you off, I don't want to yeah. be rude it's only because I want to get lots of points in. Number two, number four, number one. Um, I was told the, the referendum was advisory. 
because no one knew what deals we'd get and what deals we'd negotiate. Of course, we were told that the EU would pay us money, but we have to pay $40 billion pounds. We were told we're going to get the best deals across uh, um, the world, and yet we know that the, e the, the easiest deal to do will be six to seven years. So I'd like to ask the panel, yep. why are they not insisting on a, on a people's vote? Thank you. Number one. Yes, my question is for uh, Isabel. Um, a lot of your arguments uh, seem to be based on a personal attack of uh, Jean-Claude Juncker. Uh, th this is an unwise uh, pitch to take, isn't it? Because he'll be gone fairly soon, whereas the effects of Brexit will last forever. Oh, well, because he's such an easy target. Uh, I mean, of course, he's just one rotten apple in, in the basket. But I also want to really nail this people's vote thing. This is a schmaltzy piece of spin. Do not fall for this. This is designed to repackage a betrayal and a stitch-up. What is a people's vote? If we haven't already had it, it was called the referendum. We have had the people's vote. We've done this. Okay, thank you. Just, just do, deal with the young thing, because I don't, I'm not sure you've quite addressed the, the gentleman's question, which is, he would say, I think, Jean-Claude Juncker is not the EU. There are 27 democratic leaders as well as Britain in the EU, and the attempt to characterise everything the EU does through the words of one man is misleading. Well, of course it is. I unfortunately only had seven minutes. Okay. But, I mean, if the, if the premise yep. here is that without John claude Juncker, everything would be hunky-dory, I utterly refute that. And it's worth remembering, by the way, that the EU is not a static thing. In fact, as Gerard said, the project evolves all the time. So if we vote to stop this and go back in again, we're binding ourselves up in even tighter knots. I'm going to start the wind-up speeches by asking Gerard Lyons, it's just a couple of minutes, if you would, Gerard, to give your wind-up speech, and you can just sit where you are, that's fine. Thank okay. you. Well, thanks to everyone for coming. It's not easy to leave something you've been in for 40 years. I called it a Nike shrew. So I was fully supportive of Brexit. I said, relative to what it would otherwise be, the economy in the couple of years after we've left, we'll go through a difficult time. You can't be in something which is so complex, infiltrates our economy so much, and expect it to be easy. But it will be positive if we have the right attitude. We need to get our domestic economy right. We need to have a good relationship with the EU. We need to position ourselves globally. It's about basically accepting that good news is that we're distancing ourselves from a political project whose economic underpinnings are flawed. Gerald and Lance, we have you. to address the opportunity outside. Thank you. Gina Mellon, a couple of minutes for you. Um, I think we put too much focus on our membership of the EU just being about trade and economics. It's also about security. It's about us being able to be stronger together in so many ways. It is but I want to get to this idea that, um, I pick up on something Isabel said, we, did, we couldn't possibly know the detail. Isn't that the point? When you buy a house, do you not do your searches and your surveys and your reports and then decide if you will go ahead rather than getting something back which is not what you thought and then you go ahead anyway? It is just common sense. I wanted, and I wanted to answer the lady at the top who talked about fearful messaging. 
not, this is not about fear. This is what people are talking about now. This is the detail. This is looking at the government's own scenario planning in their reports that ministers are having to put their phones away and go in and read. Okay. We have to look at the detail and ask the difficult questions, but be able to listen to the difficult answers and then give people the chance to vote. Gina Miller, thank you very much indeed. Isabel Oakshaw. In some ways, I'm not actually... In fact, in many ways, I'm not frightened by the prospect of another referendum. I think that the more people are pressurised and corralled to vote a different way to the way they voted the first time round, the more their resolve will be stiffened. But there is a problem that potentially the result of another referendum would be just as close and narrow again in one way or the other. And then when the hell will this misery ever end? Finally, I want to say something about the tone of this debate. I have felt at times tonight that it has been a little prickly, to say the best. Now, I mean, Gina knows, of all people, Gina knows how nasty this debate has become. She has to have security around her, which is just unbelievable. I get the fact that people feel passionately about this, but do we really want to put ourselves through all this again just to get the same result? No. Let's crack on. I think, I, think to be, I think to be fair to Isabel, you said yes before she got to the end of the sentence, which was to get to the same results. And finally, for the wind-up speeches, Chukramina. Let me just um, go to the heart of the matter, because I think taking back control is at the heart of so much of this debate. And I have to say, in many respects, the biggest threat to people's individual sovereignty and the sovereignty of nation-states are often large multinational companies which are more powerful and sometimes have a net worth more than some countries. Just look at all these stories around Cambridge Analytica, Facebook and the rest. If we want to deal with that and marshal this international system to serve people and not the other way around, I don't see how you do that other than working across borders with other countries, which is why Google sits up and pays attention when they get a 2.2 billion euro fine from the European Commission through trying to rig the global international online marketplace. It is why Apple has been forced to pay back 10 billion euros in tax that it thought it could get off having to pay the Irish government. The point is, if we want to get this system to work better for people, a system that operates across borders, democracy has to operate across borders, and we do that with other countries who have the same values and the same challenges as us. That is why I want us to stay in the European Union. I have a piece of paper here. Just to remind you, before the vote, 65% of people voted for the motion that Brexit should be stopped. 23% were against. 12% were undecided. After the debate, the figure was 84% for the motion. 12% against. 4% undecided. 
So, it just remains for me to thank you for coming, to thank you for your contributions in your debate. But can we thank Chukaramuna, Isabel Oakeshott, Gina Miller, and Gerard Lyons? Finally, ladies and gentlemen, this was a debate which is a model for what debate should be. Thoughtful, intelligent, civilised. Thank you to Intelligence Squared. Safe journey home.